0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com.
1: We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis. And today, the next passage we come to is Genesis 14. 17 through 24, and it says, After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. May God bless the reading of his word.
0: Amen. Thank you, Janet. Let's pray. Father, we understand from Hebrews 4 that your word is living and active. So may it be living and active in our lives today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Theologians have long debated whether there is a sin that's beneath all other sins. Um, Is there what we might call a foundational or basic sin that's beneath all others? And if so, then what is it? Now, As you might imagine, theologians love to find things to debate, right? If there's not currently a debate about something, they'll try to find something to debate. But this question of uh, the existence of a sin that's beneath all others really does seem to be an important one, because if there is such a sin, and if we can correctly determine what that sin is, then that will make us aware of his presence and therefore able to turn away from that sin and experience a deeper and richer and more satisfying communion with God. Now, for a long time, I've uh, loosely held to the theory that uh, the sin beneath all others is pride, that our overinflated ego is what leads us to commit all the other sins we commit. And I still think there's a possibility that's correct. However, I recently heard someone make a very intriguing argument that the foundational sin actually might not be pride, but rather thanklessness or a lack of gratitude toward God. Now, those of us who are parents are probably especially aware of what it's like to not... Uh, many times be shown appropriate gratitude. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, one of the younger moms in my community group uh, shared with the group about how she's sometimes tempted to become frustrated with her kids for their lack of gratitude and, and she talked about how on this one occasion when they, their ungratefulness was uh, particularly uh, noticeable to her, you know she just wanted to you know grab them by the shoulders and, and ask them. Like, do you realize everything I'm sacrificing so that you can have the, the life that you have? And uh, I think all of us who are parents can probably identify with that. And yet what we might not be as aware of is the extent to which we can be ungrateful to God for all of the blessings that he's given us. And in fact, it's this thanklessness that might very well be the sin beneath all others. For example, in Romans 1, uh, the Apostle Paul describes the way in which humanity has rebelled against God. And he says in verses 21 through 23, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or what? Give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So notice the link between honoring God as God and giving thanks to him there. Right? In fact, we might even say that to honor God as God is to give thanks to him. Right? Uh, it would seem... As though a thankless heart is nearly synonymous with a godless heart there. And looking at the rest of the passage, it's this sin of thanklessness that serves as the foundation for the idolatry uh, that's described there in verse 23, and the lengthy list of sins that's presented later in the chapter. Uh, Not only that, it also seems as though thanklessness was the sin that led Adam and Eve way back in the Garden of Eden to commit the first sinful act by eating fruit from the tree of which God had told them not to eat. They craved what was forbidden because they weren't thankful for the countless blessings and and, uh, pleasures that God had already given them in the Garden. God had given them an abundance of the most delightful things. But they were just focused on that one thing he had told them was off limits. So I think there's a strong case to be made for thanklessness being the sin that's behind all others. Uh, I guess you can come to your own conclusions about that, but at the very least, I'm sure we can all agree that a lack of thankfulness or gratitude is behind many of the other sins we commit. And that's why... I appreciate this main passage here in Genesis 14 so much because it's in this passage that Abram exhibits thankfulness toward God and directs honor where honor is due. Now, to remind you of the context here, um, we're going passage by passage through the book of Genesis for those who are uh, joining us for the first time this morning. Um, in verses 1 through 16 of the chapter, there's a big battle among the kings of the ancient regions there of Canaan and Mesopotamia. And the text says kings, but really these are more like petty kings who are each only over a single city. So it's not an enormous war, but uh, it is a pretty big battle between an alliance of four kings and an alliance of five kings. And Abram's nephew, Lot, who's now living in the city of Sodom, becomes caught up in this conflict. And is actually captured and taken away. We then read in verses 14 through 16, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all of the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So even at age 75 plus, Abram, uh, he shows surprising ability in leading his men into battle under the cover of night and rescuing his nephew Lot. Uh, You know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, I don't know, a Liam Neeson movie or something where you know everyone thinks he's just you know this random old guy who can't really do a whole lot, until you know he brings down the hammer on all of them and uh, shows them all who's boss. So similarly, it's pretty incredible what Abram does here. Yet our focus this morning will actually not be on what Abram does in the battle, but in what he does in the aftermath of the battle. And uh, it's the main idea. Of this passage is that Abram honors God for giving him victory by tithing to Melchizedek. So, again, Abram honors God for giving him victory by tithing to Melchizedek. That's the main idea of the passage, and that's what we always adopt as the main idea of our messages as well. Um, now, we'll get to Melchizedek there in a moment, but notice first in the passage another character who's quite different. Uh, than Melchizedek, and that is the king of Sodom. And uh, in fact, it seems as though this passage deliberately highlights the striking contrast between the king of Sodom and Melchizedek. Uh, we're introduced to this king in verse 17, which says, After Abram's return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. And we then read down in verses 21 through 24. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram, rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Escol, and Mamre take their share. So Abram really gives the king of Sodom like the cold shoulder and refuses any kind of association with it. And I think we can safely assume that the reason for that is related to the notorious wickedness of Sodom. Uh, back in the previous chapter, if you remember from last week. We were told in verse 13 that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So it's very understandable that Abram doesn't desire any uh, association with this king of Sodom or, or put any trust in him. And likewise, I would say that we also should be uh, thoughtful and careful about those with whom we associate. As uh, Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 15.33... Bad company ruins good morals. Uh, The NIV translates that, bad company corrupts good character. Um, Back when I was in college, I had a uh, ministry position uh, on the the dorm that I was living on. It was a Christian university, and so every dorm had um, what they called spiritual life directors. And I was one of these spiritual life directors for my dorm and therefore had a, just a very helpful ministry platform for ministering to the guys on my hall. And uh, one of those guys was named Will. And uh, Will was, uh, I guess he, he was something else. He had just been uh, kicked out of a notorious party school in the area for being too rowdy for the party school. And so I guess his dad thought it was a good idea for, uh, to send him to a, a Christian college, uh, that had some very strict rules, I would say. And uh, needless to say, keeping those rules was sometimes a bit of a challenge uh, for Will. But uh, I, I managed to build a, a relationship with him, and and it got to the point where you know we were having a meal together probably every day or two in the campus dining facilities. And I was sort of proud of myself for the fact that I had Um, you know, managed to to develop this relationship, even though Will was a a little standoffish at first because he knew I was a spiritual life director. We we turned the corner in the relationship, and we ended up becoming pretty decent friends. However, uh, after a couple of months, I began to realize that Will was beginning to rub off on me a little bit. Um, Even though I was a strong Christian and taking classes to be a pastor and and things like that, uh, Will, just his vulgar mouth and his, uh, we'll say, depraved ambitions and uh, just his generally godless perspective on life really began to have an effect on me and, and started to weaken my walk with God. And that kind of surprised me because I had assumed initially that it would work the other way around. And so I eventually had to begin to distance myself uh, from Will uh, a bit. And then a few weeks later Will ended up getting kicked out of the school anyway, which wasn't a total surprise and so that that brought a decisive end, I guess, to our relationship. But the whole experience taught me that 1 Corinthians 15 really is true. That bad company corrupts good character, even in an overwhelmingly Christian environment and even For an aspiring pastor and so i would say just be careful about those with whom you choose to build the closest friendships i mean obviously don't neglect building genuine friendships with those who aren't christians yet after all that's part of our calling as christians right to 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 spread the the good news of the gospel and to let people see the love and the joy and the authenticity in our lives Uh, So don't neglect building friendships with those who aren't yet Christians, but at the same time, I would say make sure that your closest friends are people who are going to help you grow closer to God rather than anyone who might pull you further away from God. However, returning to Genesis 14, Abram relates to Melchizedek in a way that's strikingly different than the way he relates to the king of Sodom we read in verses 18 through 20 and Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine he was priest of God most high and he blessed him and said blessed be Abram by God most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So, who is this guy, Melchizedek? This is the first time he's mentioned in the book of Genesis, and actually the only time. He comes onto the scene of the story, but then leaves just as quickly as he came. He's a, a rather mysterious figure. However, this passage does tell us a little bit about him. First, it says he's the king of Salem. Now, Salem wasn't identified earlier as one of the cities that was involved in that big battle between the two alliances. And so Melchizedek's coming into this situation as something of an outsider. And actually, it seems as though Salem was none other than what would later be Jerusalem. For starters, it's obviously right there in the name, right? Jerusalem. Right, city of Salem, and it's also confirmed by Psalm 76 six two, which um, speaking of God, it states that his abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. So Melchizedek was king of what would later become known as the city of Jerusalem, aka the holy city, because that's where God's temple would be located and therefore was the literally the dwelling place of god himself and not only are we told that melchizedek's the king of salem we're also told something even more intriguing that he's priest of god most high now a priest is someone who basically functions as an intermediary between two uh between people and god and the old testament law that would later be given through Moses, was actually very specific about the duties of priests. Uh, Their central function was to offer sacrifices and prayers to God on behalf of the Israelites. And so God's people in the Old Testament, it didn't really have direct access to God, but instead had to go through a priest as an intermediary for many things. Uh, today, I guess it's kind of like the maybe the interactions between a uh, a buyer and seller of a house, right? If you've ever purchased or or uh, uh, sold a house before, then you probably know that direct communication between the buyer and seller is usually discouraged, right? The the appropriate thing to do in most cases is to direct all communication through the real estate agents who are separating. who are representing, rather, the, the buyer and the seller. So those real estate agents are acting as intermediaries between the two parties. And that's similar to the way the priesthood functioned in the Old Testament. And it's very intriguing that Melchizedek here is identified as a priest because he wasn't a part of the official Old Testament priesthood. He wasn't born into that, so he's just kind of out there on his own. He's also identified as both priest and king, which were two offices that never mixed at any other point in the Old Testament. So like I said, he's a very mysterious figure. In addition, uh, looking here at what Melchizedek did, it first says that he brought out bread and wine to uh, refresh Abram as, uh, I guess, an expression of goodwill and generosity. And uh, that's always, I would say, a great way to begin a relationship, right? With good food and good drinks. Um, More traditional Baptists can substitute sparkling cider, I guess. But not only does uh, Melchizedek bring out bread and wine uh, to Abram, he also blesses him. He says, blessed be Abram. By God most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then, in response to Melchizedek's blessing, we see in the second part of verse 20, that Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth, also called a tithe in the Bible, of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. And that's incredibly significant. First of all, Melchizedek's, or Abram's affirming Melchizedek as a legitimate representative of God. Also, Abram's expressing agreement with what Melchizedek said about God being the one who had granted Abram victory in battle. So Abram's directing honor here where honor is due. That's where we get the title of the sermon instead of acting as though he were victorious in battle by his own strength or through his own resources abram's acknowledging that the only way he was victorious was through god and god alone and he's expressing gratitude toward god for that victory so what about you have you ever truly recognized That God is the source of every blessing you enjoy. If you can breathe, it's because God is putting breath in your lungs. If you can walk, it's because God is giving strength to your legs. If you have food, it's because God's provided you with that food. If you have a family, it's because God's blessed you with that family. God's also the source of every item on your resume, every dollar in your bank account, and every possession in your house. So let's not think even for a moment that we've obtained or achieved anything apart from God. As Paul asked in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? I heard uh, Dave Ramsey tell a story one time about some of his efforts to teach his kids about money. Uh, the family had just purchased a uh, brand new luxury SUV. And as one of the, the, his children, a young child, was getting into the back seat of that vehicle... The the child said to him, you know, dad, we're doing pretty well, aren't we? And David replied to him, no, son, I'm doing pretty well. You're broke. (laughs) So similarly, God is the source of every good thing we enjoy. Like we didn't ultimately earn or achieve any of it, nor does any of it ultimately belong to us. Instead, we simply enjoy because of God's undeserved goodness and grace. And so the only proper response to that is one of profound gratitude toward God. And notice in Genesis 14, the specific way in which Abram expresses his gratitude toward God. He does that in a very tangible way. By giving to God a portion of, of the wealth God had enabled him to obtain, see, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there's actually this this invisible cord running from your heart all the way down here to your wallet, right? If you truly are grateful to God, if you truly love God in your heart, then it's going to show up in the way you. Steward the way you use the resources God's entrusted to you. In fact, I would say that the way you spend money is probably one of the most reliable indicators there is of the state of your heart. In addition, uh, notice not only the fact that Abram gave to God a portion uh, of the wealth in general, but also the specific percentage of it. That he gave. It says he gave a tenth of it, or a tithe. Uh, In case you don't know, the word tithe literally means tenth. Now, um, as you might be aware, the Israelites were, uh, tithing is something that the Israelites were commanded to do uh, as a very important element of the Old Testament law. They were commanded to give a tenth uh, of their income to God. However, Lest we think that tithing was only something that God intended for the nation of Israel, uh, since they were the ones who were under the law, we also find examples in the Bible, like the one we find here, of Abram tithing to Melchizedek. Now, keep in mind, like this is a critical thing that, that Abram did this 600 years before the Old Testament law was given. Like Moses wouldn't even come for another 600 years. So Abram here is not tithing as one who was under the law. Also, uh, not only does Abram give a tithe to Melchizedek, the Bible also records in Genesis 28, 22, Abram's grandson, Jacob, committing himself to the regular practice of tithing as well. And again, that also was before the law was given, before Moses arrived on the scene. So even though you and I aren't under the Old Testament law, since uh, that law was intended for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament rather than for us today, we still see that tithing is a pattern of giving, I would say the pattern of giving, consistently commended in the Bible. And so although tithing isn't commanded in the Bible, at least not for us as New Testament Christians, it's still nevertheless commended So if you're taking notes, feel free to write that down. Although tithing our income isn't commanded in the Bible, it is commended. And as we see with Abram here, tithing is a tangible recognition that God's the source of every good thing we enjoy. It was God, after all, who gave Abram victory in battle, and also God who provides us ultimately with every good thing that we enjoy. And uh, tithing is also an expression of our gratitude toward God for all that he's given to us and all that he's done for us. And so for those who are Christians, so understand me now, I'm not talking to to non-Christians who who are in attendance this morning, but specifically to Christians. If you count yourself a Christian and a member of this church, let me encourage you and uh, even challenge you to start tithing. Your income if you're not doing so already or at the very least take whatever the next step is toward tithing your income so you know if you're not giving anything maybe take the next step of giving something Uh, or if you're already giving something maybe take the next step of giving something on a regular recurring basis Uh, by the way that's very easy on our church's website you can set it to automated recurring giving Or if you're already giving something on a regular basis, then consider uh, tithing your income on a regular basis. And if you're already tithing on a regular basis, let me encourage you to view the tithe not as the maximum, but only the beginning of what generosity might look like for you. Uh, You know, if you are, uh, if you have some time, feel free to study the subject of generosity in the Old Testament, or the New Testament rather, and I believe that might very well lead you to give More than a tithe, not because of some sense of guilt or obligation, but just as an overflow of the joy that you have in the Lord. Read the verses uh, relevant, especially in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and see what God does in your heart. Um, I'll tell you right now, Becky and I give considerably above a tithe of our income, and it is an absolute joy for us to do that. But looking once again at Genesis 14, there's still one loose end. That we have to tie up. And that loose end is related to Melchizedek. As we've noted a couple of times, Melchizedek is a very mysterious figure. I mean, how could this random Canaanite king be a priest of the one true God? And are we really to think that he was higher in spiritual stature than the great patriarch Abraham? I mean, Abraham received a blessing from Melchizedek and also gave a tithe to Melchizedek. So clearly, Melchizedek is, as we'll see in a moment, in some sense, superior to Abraham. But how is that even possible? It's just so unexpected. Um, Melchizedek certainly is an enigma, if there ever was one. Thankfully, though, uh, there are a few other passages in the Bible that shed some light on this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. There's actually only one other passage in the entire Old Testament that talks about him, but it's an important one. In Psalm 110, David writes of the coming Messiah and says of him in verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you, speaking of the Messiah, you are a priest forever After the order of Melchizedek. Now, up to this point, there wasn't any line of priests that was derived from Melchizedek. Like, that wasn't a thing. There was only one sanctioned Old Testament legitimate priesthood. And that was the one that came from Levi. In order to be an Israelite priest under the Old Testament law, you had to be a descendant of Levi. No exceptions. Yet here, David intriguingly speaks about one who would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's unprecedented. And then in the the New Testament, the author of Hebrews picks up on that statement from David and actually references it a total of three times in Hebrews 5.6, Hebrews 5.10, and Hebrews 6.20. And in these passages, the author of Hebrews makes it crystal clear that this eternal priest in the line of Melchizedek is none other than Jesus. As we're told in Hebrews 6.20, for example, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, remember the function that a priest had. As we've said, the priests acted as intermediaries between sinful people and a holy God. And that's something that we all need because every single one of us, the Bible says, has sinned against God and thereby alienated ourselves from God and even stand under God's judgment. But Jesus is our great high priest. Before God the Father. So just as those Old Testament priests would offer animal sacrifices to atone, at least symbolically atone, for the sins of God's people, Jesus has made a sacrifice to atone for our sins. Though not of any animal, but the sacrifice of himself. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. God's judgment that should have come down on you and me came down on Jesus instead. That's how he's able to be that, that intermediary between us and God. As 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 tells us, For there is one God and there is one mediator, intermediary, right, between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, how? Well, who gave himself as a ransom for all. But if you were very studied in the Old Testament, you might ask how was Jesus able to be a legitimate priest? Because he wasn't descended from Levi, was it? Well, that's where Melchizedek comes in. Jesus didn't have to be descended from Levi in order to be a legitimate priest because God had already made arrangements. For him to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in fact, the author of Hebrews spends almost an entire chapter, Hebrews chapter 7, explaining that the priesthood of Melchizedek wasn't just a legitimate priesthood, but is actually superior to the priesthood of Levi. And the reason for that is because Melchizedek was superior to Abram. Um, After recounting the story of Abram and Melchizedek and Hebrews 7, 1 through 3, the author then goes on to make this point of Melchizedek being superior to Abraham very emphatically. In verses 4 through 7, he writes, See how great this man was, you know, Melchizedek was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, like from Levi, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And then the point of it, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So I know that's very tightly reasoned and a bit dense, but to just sum that up, we know that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because, number one, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and number two, Melchizedek uh, blessed Abraham. And so the reason that's important is that if Melchizedek's superior to Abraham, then he's also superior to all of Abraham's descendants, including Levi and the line of priests from Levi. Therefore, the conclusion of it all, since Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, He, too, is superior to the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of Levi, and is actually superior to everything else in the Old Testament. So Jesus is our priest. If you don't get anything else, get this. Jesus is our priest who rescues us from God's judgment and enables us to have peace with God. And we don't have to continue in our sin or in our alienation from God or or being under God's judgment any longer. Now, instead, we can have peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Have you, dear friend, ever come to experience that peace? Have you ever put your trust in Jesus, not in some religious ritual, church membership, good works, Making the world a better place? Have you ever put your trust in Jesus to do for you what you can never do for yourself? And rescue you from your sin and make you right with God? As Acts 4.12 tells us, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved.